The following is an original audio series from Sierra International Machinery, Pile of Scrap, with your host, John Sacco. Good morning, everyone. How we doing? All right, you guys didn't overdo it last night. We can see with all the smiling faces, except for the troublemakers in the back, right? We know who, who did too much last night. They're the ones in the back. Well, first of all, thank you, Jack, Jay, the brothers, for allowing me to come here, Michael, for letting me come here to have a talk with the brothers Goldstein. It's, um, it's an honor and privilege to be here. Congratulations, gentlemen, on 125 years. An incredible feat. You have an incredible company. I've gotten to know a lot of people over the last few years, and uh, all I can say is this is a big company that acts like a small family business. No bullies here. People truly trying to work with each other, and it's it's your leadership that got us there. So congratulations. So let's get started here. We got the brothers. We got Jeff, the oldest. Rob, you're the middle, Rich, you're the youngest, so I gotta know right off the bat, growing up in the Goldstein family, Jeff, were your brothers crash test dummies or punching bags? Which one was it? <laughs> crash test dummies. <laughs> Rob, a story? I remember uh, my father decided it was time for us to learn how to drive something, and we were on the great trip west with the family, the other, the station wagon, and off we go to California. First stop was Council Bluffs. So they said, let's, let's let you guys drive. So they put me in a car, they put him in a truck, and we're driving around the yard, it's like on a Saturday morning or a Sunday, it, it was, the yard was empty, and uh, um, I found myself playing chicken with Jeff. And, <laughs> and I'm like, now wait a minute, you're in a big freaking truck. <laughs> and my car's barely starting, barely moving, so. Uh, Didn't you hear crash test dummy? <laughs> <laughs> he missed me, I got out of the way. Not, not by much. You're here today. Rich, how about you? What a story about Big Brothers here. You're the last one there. Well, what was nice was they helped break in the parents. Uh, you know, they would, they, they softened them up for you. Yeah, exactly. So the parents, by the time I came around, and again, they saved the best for last, they, they knew <laughs> what to expect. That's well, more true than you know. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to teach parents. Yes. Fantastic. All right. Gentlemen, earliest memories. What, what's your first memory, each of you, your first memory of walking into one of your facilities, you, the recycling yard, the scrap yard, the junk yard back in the days, which we don't use that terminology anymore, but back when you were growing up, that's what they were calling it. So give us your first memory. We'll start with you, Rich. So um, at age 13, I was in the non-ferrous warehouse in Davenport uh, sorting brass. and. Learning from a guy named uh, Smitty how to smell brass. Of course, you can't smell brass, but uh, <laughs> but I, I still remember putting the brass on the grinder to see if it was yellow or red, uh, and and hurting my little finger. I mean, it's one of those things, but uh, but uh, but I I learned well, and I do have to make a call out. She's not here, but at age 14, I was working with Alice Lake and uh, up in the office, and uh, she was great at having me reconcile checks. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess I remember as a, as a uh, maybe five, six years old, you know, getting a drive through the yard and looking at it like that, but uh, used to be in the summer, again, 13, Big Brothers, 15 at the time, and we'd go, we'd paint stuff, we were painting boxes. I remember I put bricks inside of an afterburner one time, but after spending a whole day in this tank, they rolled it up the hatch so I could get out, and all the bricks fell on me. 
Oh, there you go. Uh, but, you know, every time we would come back home, you know, with Jeff and I walking through the yard, there's a puddle, of course, he would walk through the water that was like an inch deep. I was like down to my knee. Every time, my mother looked at us, so he's coming home clean. I had to take my clothes off outside. It was, <laughs> You're the reason there's a mug room in the house. That, yeah, <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Jeff? Well, I also started the Davenport Non-Ferris at about 14, and, and I was the first, so um, my dad said, well, I'm going to pay you to work here. You're getting half a minimum wage. I said, why is that? He says, because I'm already giving you a room and board. <laughs> so I, I had that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you know, my earliest, I did share because growing up as myself in a uh, metal recycling facility, the first piece of equipment I ever operated was a broom. Then the next one was a little handheld magnet. And when my dad put me in non-ferrous, and the magnet didn't stick, I was like, what am I here for? <laughs> if the magnet doesn't stick, I'm not having fun. Then I learned quickly that uh, the non-ferrous was far more valuable. All right, so, you know, dads have, you know, big influence on our lives, right? But sometimes we don't listen to our parents as much as we should, but there's always that mentor. Who was your mentor? Jeff, we'll start with you. Who was your mentor growing up and going to the yards? Um, I'd say early on it was uh, Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith was a great guy. Many of you here uh, may remember him, and, and uh, he just had such a, a soft touch about him, but he could get everything done. In fact, I'd heard him described as the, the velvet glove around Bernie's iron fist. Uh -huh. <laughs> that kind of guy. That kind of guy. Special person, knew how to talk to anybody and make him feel good. And what was your takeaway from him? So is, is how he interacted with people? I learned a lot about how to interact with people, exactly. and I and, I've said it many times that in the scrap yard is where I really learned how to deal with people. Because you don't know if that person walking in the door owns a multi-million dollar corporation kicking out stampings, or if it's some guy with a you know, pickup truck. But don't underestimate the guy in a pickup truck because the Wall Street Journal is sitting on the bench next to him. Right? And, and that taught me, respect everybody. Because, you, know, you don't know where it's going to go. Rob? Well, in addition, of course, to our, to our, our parents, um, there was a guy in charge of the Davenport Yard named John Doolin. Eventually he went to, uh, to lead Samuels. And so we had an old Harris 3000 baler. It was put in like in 59. So you can imagine the oil leaks that are around there. And he'd try and send a crew down in there to clean it up. And he'd get nothing but pushback all the time. So this guy goes down to Salvation Army, buys a, a suit for maybe five, ten dollars. And he comes into the yard, he tells the guy wearing the suit, come on guys, you got to clean that up. Well, we don't want to do that. He's, he looks like bump, bump, bump. And he, he jumped in the, in the middle of the oil in his suit. And these people were all like, oh my God, the Sunday best that he's doing this. And they all jumped in and helped, you know. Uh, but Chuck Smith was uh, an amazing guy, amazing mentor. He said, you know, in this business, when you start, after six months, you're going to know everything. You'll know everything there is to know about the business, no question. And about two years, you'll think you got a pretty good idea still. And in five years, you'll know what you don't know. That's when you're finally a valuable employee. You know? Rich, your mentor? Uh, so um, besides our, our parents, um, and, um, and, and Chuck Smith, someone but I didn't have as close an interaction to Chuck as Rob and Jeff did. But uh, I went to school in Des Moines. And, um, and worked with Gary Backus and uh, Bob Rosencrantz at the yard. 
during summers as well as a year after school, and uh, and they were they were wonderful early mentors. Um, Bob spent a lot of time with me on Saturday mornings or running the scale at the time, uh, and uh, it, it was it was great. But I mean, I've had many mentors. I mean, I could go through the list over over the course of the years of people in the company. So you, you said, you talk about school. So let, let's talk about education for your college, you know, after high school, down the line. Where, where did you go to school? I went to Drake in Des Moines. Drake in Des Moines. I came here to Tulane and I really haven't emotionally left yet. <laughs> <laughs> I have an attachment here. Jeff? University of Pennsylvania. Wow, that, okay, that's impressive. Okay, so you're out of college now, you're, you're going into the company, you're, you're gonna go work with the fam. What's your first job, Jeff? What did, what did your dad or whoever said, this is your first job, what was it? Gosh, what was it? <laughs> <laughs> you still waiting? <laughs> yeah, still waiting. No, I was working, I, uh, I spent time in the Davenport yard, mostly non-Ferris, some Ferris, and just learning my way around and, oh no, I, I beg your pardon, I beg your pardon. Uh, I, I just gotten married right out of school and uh, started work that summer, and my folks had a very good idea. They said, you're, you're newlyweds, you should not be here in Davenport, you should be either in Council Bluffs or St. Paul. And so I was sent off to work with Alan Levy up in St. Paul that first couple of years, and where I was out in the yard, uh, learning how to grade scrap, uh, learning how to deal with the customers that were coming in and out, and then learning how to manage people, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, second, second year was out you know, calling on accounts. Third year, we had a shredder going into Davenport and needed somebody to go out and call on car uh, auto wreckers. So that was my first three years. Rob? I was a lead man in the Davenport yard and the shredder was just starting up. I remember we had sold, we had 20,000 tons of bundles and that was a, the five foot bundles out of that Harris uh, baler I was talking about. And first time I was with some of the guys and we had these bales stacked everywhere. First explosion we had with the gas tank going through the shredder. All of us, we hit the dirt and we're looking at each other like, what was that? But we were hiding behind this big wall of bales, so we were okay. Yeah, thank God they didn't tumble on you. And Rich, how about you? So I was, um, I worked at the Des Moines yard and my first job was calling on salvage yards and accounts. So the dress code back then was coat and tie. I mean, it didn't matter what you did. And I literally went to salvage yards, kicked chickens out of the way, and had to relate to these, to the uh, customers. And I was starting to say, and yup, and y'all. And I had no idea that later I would actually live in Birmingham and New Orleans where y'all was like a real word. <laughs> but it worked. All right, so I'm gonna go to you, Rob, on this one since I've, the brothers on the end seem to get the first question. Look, there's no doubt that 125 years, you have to have so many things working in the right way. And as I started this morning on in the intro is, I know this company culture, I feel it, I've seen it, I've been around. Rob, how does the company culture from when you started, as it evolves, how, how did you get to know all of you, but Rob, to you first, is, the recipe that created what I see here and what I feel here and what I saw last night and what you and Jack and, and Jay said this morning, what you know, how does that evolve? How, how did you do it? Well, from an early age, um, 
you know, our parents would drill things into us, which is what you want to do with your kids. You know, they're emotionally uh, pliable, and you can teach them something, sort of, maybe before age six or seven. Um, but uh, it, was, it was always in a different, different manner as it was, it was given to us. But the, the culture is about integrity. It's about honesty. It's about respect. You know, respect for one another, respect for you know, the people that work for you or you work for, your customers. Um, and in the end, it's about family. And uh, I guess to sum it up, you know, I always say, look, here's the deal. You know, your job is to take care of my family. My job is to take care of your family. And that's, that's kind of how we do it. I'd like to tell you it's more high tech. But since I'm not Elon Musk, I, uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't dress it up that way. Jeff, you want to add to that? I agree. There you go. <laughs> you agree that I'm not Elon Musk? I, 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 I agree. I have to add, you know, we've been raised forever to teach people with respect uh, and, uh, and, and, and have that feeling of everyone in this room is part of our family. So I'm second generation. I have a brother. We divvied up, my dad divvied up our duties, so we really didn't step over each other. And I think that's part of the success we've had. So how did your dad, did he really have a plan to put the brothers in places that the company needed and then you all came together to report together so that way you didn't step on each other? So what was his philosophy about the brothers and how you were gonna work in the company? Anybody? Uh, he, uh, he always wanted three legs to the stool. The scrap business, we were in the barge business, and then we were a, couple, a small grain company and looking for other things to, to invest in. And uh, early on I started scrap, then I moved to the barge line, and then I ended up back in scrap. Jeff, I think, was the same way, opposite. Uh, and in the end, you know, Jeff was running the barge company and, and I think the grain company, mm -hmm. and uh, I had the scrap company, and Rich had new development. So I know Rich looked at a lot of things, like we had just about built an ethanol plant, uh, and the market changed, thankfully, before we broke ground. But, uh, yeah, so that's kind of how we, different, different areas, but we'd all come together. We had lunch usually at the Village Inn in Bettendorf, and we would talk about things and, you know, work so, together. So you, you all found your spot within the business and your passions. Jeff, you, you the logistics and the barge became something that you became super passionate about. Tell us about what was that moment? Did you have that moment says, this is, this is really, this is for me? Well, I, I had a very steep learning curve because I, I grew up in the scrap business for 25 years and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm managing the, uh, the barge business because the fellow before me just kind of hit the end of his road and burned out. And uh, it, was a, it was one of those choices, do we keep this business or do we try and continue to, to make it work? And that's where I jumped in. And so I had an awful lot of teachers, and a lot of good teachers. They were all good people in that business and, and uh, enjoyed working with them. Um, but, you know, like I said to, to a lot of folks, I mean, I, I don't know how to drive a towboat, but I know how to use a towboat. I understood that. And so, uh, and that's how that moved on. But it, uh, I guess the best thing I did in the barge line business was sell the darn thing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you miss it? Uh, a little, a little. I mean, uh, about six. It was one of those things where market forces came to, uh, you know, came to, the stars lined up 
Yeah, there was an, excuse me, there was an opportunity after decades of too much equipment, low prices, low rates, et cetera, et cetera, where everything popped up to be great. And uh, the big driver was a uh, flooding of coal mines in Australia, which drove the demand for coal in America to go overseas. Demand was like through, through the roof. Everybody needed barges, and we had new barges compared to everybody else. Um, so we got some good offers. Six months after that, guess what happened? The floods went away, market went back down. So timing was luck. Totally, totally luck and be at the right place at the right time. So, yeah, I do miss it some, but I did, the fellow that bought the barge line from me, I saw him a year later, and I said, so are they still talking to you in your office? <laughs> so Rich, you, you, yesterday as we were talking, you're the most geographic of, of the brothers in your movement. And New Orleans has a special place in your heart. Yeah. Tell us about it. Tell us about your movement and around and the places you were and, and really what your, what your places and your good memories are. So when I was in Des Moines, uh, Chuck Smith called me up one day and he said, we need you up in St. Paul. Okay, to be an account executive. Okay, when? Yesterday. <laughs> so a lot of notice. So I lived and worked up there. Um, under a guy named George McGrath. It was a great to see the scrapyard river terminal environment combination work together. Uh, and then from there I went to Birmingham, Alabama where we had a, a brokerage office. Uh, way back when we were the exclusive supplier to buy new steel. And, uh, and my job was to help try to diversify a little bit. Uh, later on the buy new steel relationship due to an acquisition of them, of, of the steel mill changed. Um, but so we uh, closed our Birmingham office and I moved to New Orleans to continue Ferris brokering. Uh, and uh, so yeah, so that was an exciting, uh, living here was, was wonderful. I met my wife um, and then um, this yard didn't work out for multiple reasons. As I said, the Bayou Steel arrangement changed uh, and uh, so I, before I knew we'd sell the scrapyard, I asked my wife to marry me and took her to Iowa for six years. So I worked there. Um, and while I was there, um, after about a, after we had our son Alex being a baby, um, I was, Rob said, run the scrapyard in Dubuque for a year, train uh, a guy named Mark. And, um, and while I was there, I, um, I noticed pretty quickly that Dawn should have been the manager, not, not Mark, because Dawn, and I don't, I can say Dawn like Cher, you know, I mean, everyone knows Dawn, I don't have to say her last name on there, uh, and, um, but she's just Dawn, but she could do like three things at once, she was the skill person, secretary, but she also was timing how long someone took to load the trucks, uh, she could understand five things at once in an amazing way. Uh, so I just had to give a little call out to Don. All right, which one's Don? Don is in the back left corner. Ah! Right on, Don. All right. So... And, and then back to St. Louis uh, later on. We moved there. Um, so do you, when you wake up in the morning, do you know where you are? Or you? No clue. <laughs> okay. So, look. You've had tremendous success, and you've had some disappointments along the way. Share with us a disappointment, Jeff, if you would, of something that looked great, and you know, but when you got into it, maybe just didn't pan out, 
And uh, what did you learn from that? Um, I would I'd echo what Rich said. The New Orleans yard, you know, was a you know a noble effort and made a lot of sense at the time when we got into it. The pieces just never quite aligned, and. and uh, it's hard to be buying domestic scrap here for a domestic consumer and competing against a guy who's selling an export product. It's just di different animals. And uh, they can only go so far. And uh, I remember Jake Barnes at the time when I asked him, what do we do about, you know, how do we fix this yard? He says, get one big padlock, throw away the key. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out to be right. It was unfortunate, we tried. Rob, what about you? Any recollection of something that might have been a disappointment for you? Well, certainly the New Orleans Yard, we had high hopes for that. Um, but, uh, you know, you live and learn, you try something. And as long as you learn from your mistakes, it's tuition. If you don't learn from them, then you got problems. Um, but there's a, there was a couple acquisitions that, in retrospect that if I would have stepped up, you know, was comfortable with a little bit more money, eh, some of those would have made a big difference to us today. But, you know, you can't, you can't hit them all right. And uh, you know, you do the best you can, and you stay disciplined. You know, it's the one thing that really uh, impacts growth. I mean, you can if you go out to buy a company, you can fix almost anything except overpaying. <laughs> <laughs> so that uh, there's been a few of those mistakes, but not nothing major, nothing that would kill us. So apparently, <laughs> was it the all adage that we've all were taught growing up in this industry? It's not what you sell it for; it's what you pay for. Yeah. It. yeah. What you buy? Yeah. Yep. Well, all right. So well, what, what, it, I want to yeah, add yeah. on that topic. Yeah, absolutely. So the the other way of looking at it, so was um, and Rob mentioned it was the ethanol uh, business that we were going to get into. So I mean, we hired Doug Reisdorfer, who was a manager of an ethanol plant, a great guy. We. We had all the engineering done on property we had. We had a grain company to feed it, but uh, we had we had construction people starting. And then um, Errol Mellick, the head of our grain company, and I attended a conference, saw ethanol prices were going down, natural gas prices, ethanol was going up. The risk-reward ratio didn't happen. I really, really wanted this business to happen and, uh, and expand. But I also didn't want to go bankrupt. Yeah. And we were one of the leaders in the industry, ethanol industry, in not going bankrupt. There you go. Several dead. All right, so your mother played an important role in something that's important to everybody in every yard, and that's safety. And there is an award that you've named, the, the Rini Award, after your mother. So somebody here, tell us about, Jeff, let's go start with you. Tell us about your mother and her involvement in safety and how all of these years later it becomes important to the whole company in every fabric of it. Well, she was always well-grounded and always advises don't do anything stupid. So I think that was a good place to start and I'll let you take it from there. <laughs> well, we may have done a couple stupid things over the years. <laughs> Hopefully without many witnesses. Now, Mom, uh, you know, she was very caring. Uh, you know, we'd go to the yard in the morning. She wanted to make sure we had all of our fingers when we came back. Um, she, was, she was very, she was impactful. When I, I was about three or four years old, I remember getting in the car, I would get in the back seat, and she asked me a question. I forgot what it was, but I said, a, I said like a little white lie or something. She turned around, and I'd never seen a conniption fit before. 
but her face split and fire shot from her eyes. And I have not been able to tell a lie since. I, it's tr I mean, I may not tell you everything I know, but I, I, but I can't lie. Uh, it's really strange, but uh, no, she was, she was a very loving person. And yeah, you know, the, the scrap came from her father. You know, her, her uh, maiden name was Alter. And uh, you know, that's where it came from. So she, uh, she was an amazing lady. So, along with safety, Rich will go to you on this, gold coins. Your father gave out gold coins for performance and safety awards. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, the, he wanted to respect the, um, the uh, achievements uh, related to performance, related to safety uh, at events such as this. Uh, for both, he, at the time, way back when, he did it for both the barge company and the scrap company. Uh, together, and it was a way of providing recognition to those that that were successes in their in their achievements. Well, you know, in episode two of Repurposed, I use a gold coin as an analogy for no one would call a gold coin, you know, junk or waste or trash, and it's really apropos now all these years to hear about this because the gold coin is the ultimate recycled metal, if you will, to give somebody. Copper and aluminum and stainless and iron, we all got that and it has old value, but I think the gold coin is, is symbiotic to the ultimate quality of what you're doing in, in this particular industry. It's also generally something you hold on to, uh, like a trophy, but you know if you want to, you can, you know, spend it. <laughs> so there's another award in the company, it's called the Rosie Award. Who wants to tell us about the Rosie Award? Well, it's, as you know, you need mentors in life. You know, I tell kids that are just starting out, they just get out of college, don't worry about your, your paycheck. I mean, you have enough to live on, but don't worry about it. Find the best mentors you can, and, and that will set you up for life. Um, and Rosie, <coughs> well, he's, he's still, I almost say was, because he's still very much alive. I ended up still a phenomenal friend, but he taught maybe a third of the people in the room. You know, I mean, we would run everybody through Rosie's yard and Rosie and his people, um, you know, just did a phenomenal job in breaking them in. Kale, you were, I mean, how many people here were, were impacted by Rosie? Yeah, you're Not right. Not bad. Not bad. In fact, um, when Rosie and I first met Jay, we were walking later on, like that, a couple of days, a week later. We we're talking. He goes, "You know, Rob, you need a COO." I said, "Yeah, I know. I suck at details." And uh, he says, "That's the guy." And uh, so, yeah. So Jay raised his hand because you know it was, I'm the one who signed the paper, but I'm not sure, I think Rosie probably hired him. <laughs> <laughs> well, no wonder you name an award after him. Well, so yeah, exactly. So we want to we want to encourage everybody to be mentors. I think that's, you know, that's, again, going back to your company culture, the fact that people are willing to mentor other people to be the best they can and not worry about the success, that somebody might have success because they got mentored properly. Again, it's a testimony to, to your success and all your company altogether. So your father retires, and then one day he comes to you brothers and says, I'm coming out of retirement. We're going to do some gaming, casinos on the river, Ayala Capri, all right, I, I got to know what that conversation was like. Share with us what that was like. 
we had, uh, there was a GI case plant down on the river with a mile of riverfront underneath the Interstate 74 bridge, flood protected. They had all these big old buildings, and back then, uh, as related to uh, what Jimmy Carter did, the grain embargo, a lot of these companies would go broke. Between that and a lot of them had some unbelievably ridiculous union contracts. So this place closed, and uh, I, I went over it to try and buy it. My father says, you can't buy it cheap enough. I said, okay. Well, we bought it cheap enough and left the environmental with them. Uh, this, these buildings were so big, I got up to 60 miles an hour inside in a Buick. <laughs> and, uh, you were testing so, the speed limit inside well, of it. Exactly. I got it. Uh, I was looking to see how many misspellings, words there were in the graffiti, you know, as I flew past. Um, at the time, there was a couple, guys, a couple of legislators that were from the Quad Cities that were trying to pass riverboat gaming. And really, it was a tourism belt with a, like a small casino to, to pave the way. So I talked to Dan, I said, listen, you know, why don't we try and support these guys getting this bill passed, because we can lease this out to a gaming guy way better than turning it into some kind of an industrial park. He said, well, it'll never happen, go ahead. So uh, an attorney, Kurt Beeson and I, uh, spent a lot of time in Des Moines lobbying, and we got the bill passed. And while we're doing that, and it, and it took on some, you know, it looked like it was gonna happen, Dad got involved in the lobbying. And, you know, Dad got a pretty big, Cuts a pretty big uh, swath, if you will, um, and it, it it really resonated with a lot of the, the legislators when we brought when we brought him in to tell them what to, what we're to expect and what we were going to do. Carried a lot of weight. So uh, while we're doing that, we're trying to find a guy, a, a gaming guy that could be our, our tenant and or maybe a partner. And we had these guys coming out from Vegas, and they had the shark skin suits and the hair greased back, and um, they said, "Listen, we'll be partners." He says, you put up all the money, and we'll take half the profits. We're like, eh. So at that time, you know, our father, he'd, he'd retired because he had a, he'd had a heart attack, or had, had like a quadruple bypass. And, but that would have been a number of years in the past, and he, he was bored. And uh, so he came back, he sent three of us down, well, four of our, our brother-in-law was still with us at the time. And uh, um, he said, what do you think about us going into the business? And I said, well, Dad, you told us, when I was a little kid, I wanted, I wanted to have run a motel, you know. He says, if you do that, start as a bellboy and work your way up. And don't just walk in there like you own the place. And uh, so I said, Dad, what about that conversation? He said, you know, the only place to gamble between Atlantic City and Nevada is going to be here in Davenport, here in the Quad Cities. We got room to make mistakes. And uh, so off we went. And he hired a bunch of guys, out of, out of, mostly out of Atlantic City. And... Uh, so at the time, I, that's when I moved for, uh, to become president of the scrap company. So while I was a board member of the gaming company, I was, you know, my, my focus was scrap, as it had to be. And, uh, but it was, it was fun, it was a real heady time. Of course, with the limits in Iowa, then all of a sudden Illinois opened up without limits. We started losing a ton of money. And uh, so we, we had to do something. So we basically, you know, dad was, the father of Riverboat Gaming. We opened the first boat in the country, the first boat in Iowa. We were the first to leave Iowa. <laughs> and because <laughs> uh, we got a license in Biloxi, and there were no limits in Biloxi. It didn't have to cruise, and it, it just took off like wildfire. It oh. was, we had lines like over a mile long, and we were taking food and water out to the people in line, because you know, once we had capacity. It was, it was 
Yeah, so let, let's talk about that. Uh, Jeff or Rich, whichever one will jump in here. This is part of Alter, the Goldstein family giving back. Her, Hurricane Katrina was horrible. And you have uh, this, this riverboat casino in Biloxi, yet you used it to help the community. Jeff, why don't you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, the, uh, when, when Katrina went through, as many of you know, it, it, it totally destroyed uh, major chunks of housing stock along the coast, the Gulf Coast. And we had people, especially in the Biloxi Casino, that were, couldn't find a place to live closer than an hour and a half or two hours away, like up in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. So Dad started asking around, what is it that we can do, or how do we help with this housing problem? And I think he was talking with you know, some of the contractors that we used on the uh, Isle, Isle Hotel and such, who steered him to a fellow uh, named Jim Bergman, who was doing affordable housing. And uh, so we got, got hooked up with Jim, and I was the lead guy on that project, where we ended up finding some uh, land down in Gulfport, not far from Biloxi, the next town over. And uh, we were able to uh, negotiate to buy a nice chunk of land and put up about 340 modest homes, affordable homes, using tax, tax credit uh, financing to help keep the cost low. And uh, that worked out to be a great success because uh, you're talking about middle-income people, you know, police, fire, nurse, uh, teachers, you know, whatever, um, and giving them a nice community and an opportunity to buy that house at the end of a certain amount of years. And uh, it worked out great. In fact, we, just, we got to a point where we just sold that project to another partner of ours uh, just about two months ago. But that was a great success. So let's go further past that. You guys have a foundation, and you deal with hospitals and research. Tell us about it. It's, it started out, actually, in the, the roots of it started way back when, when my uh, dad's younger brother had um, a family craft out in their, in their private plane out in Colorado long back in 73, 72 uh, or so. And um, they helped fund a search and rescue uh, operation you know, and, um, and ended up uh, developing something called the Civilian Search and Rescue, I think it was called, yes. um, uh, program. Uh, was the first charity, I guess, that they set up or foundation. Um, years go by, and after the sale of the barge line um, and, uh, and some other things, we started funding our, our, a family foundation. Uh, and, um, and we do help uh, community development uh, not now we don't develop communities, uh, healthcare in the communities, uh, as well as education in communities, um, and uh, as well as other medical causes, uh, and it's 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 done well. It, it, we try to do good for those that need good. Well, that's incredible because you guys are giving back. You've had much success, and you're giving back to the communities, and that's to be applauded. All right, so let's talk about the industry for a second. Got a little bit of time left here. We're doing well. A lot of consolidation out there. And uh, a lot of big company, you know, you know, commercial, SA, Schnitzer, and all these kind of buying up a lot of facilities. What's your opinion on consolidation? Is it overheated? 
or is this just what we are going to be used to in this industry throughout uh, North America? I think it's going to, there's going to continue to be consolidation, um, and I think you'll end up with some really big guys and some really small guys. And the guys in the middle, there'll be a few of them, but there won't be as many of them around. And in a way that's sad, I mean, you know, I'm going to go to Scrapton next this year. I missed, I skipped the last two or three of them. I walked around, I didn't know anybody. You know, we used to know everybody in the, in the place. And it's, they'd either been bought out or we bought them out. Um, and uh, so it's, it's really, it's interesting. I walk around with Michael, he knows way more people than I do, you know. <laughs> Most of them look like, the, the, as my father said, when he hadn't been to one in a long time, and he came to, to one, and uh, I said, so you see anybody you know? He says, yeah, I saw everybody I know. But they didn't look exactly right. He said they were all the kids of the people that he knew. <laughs> so, but it's, you know, it, it's an industry that, that, when I took a look at the company, we were with eight yards. Our father always said he wanted to be the best, not the biggest. And we, we all agree with that. But we needed to get a little bit more throwaway. Uh, you know, when you're a, a small yard, you got people, you know, they, they can, they, they control your business more than you do almost. And uh, so with size, now we get respect from some of the steel mills that, you know, would used to crush us under their heel like a cigarette butt. And now uh, they can't do that anymore. And, now, and then now with the, the new effort on decarbonization, you know, scrap is the best way to make steel from an environmental point of view. So uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's nice to know we're not, we're not buying, we're not making buggy whips. <laughs> I ask myself that every time we do an acquisition, particularly the bigger ones, it's like, is this a good thing or are we going down the wrong direction? And every time, it's like probably more now than even the past couple of years. So with new mills coming online in the, in the southern states, southern part of the U.S., uh, you're, you're seeing for our industry and for Alter, for that matter, great opportunity. Yeah. So your people need to know that you guys see there's great opportunity out there, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Absolutely. It's we've positioned the company well. We've got tons of cash. We're we're to go. I'm, I'm kind of like looking forward to a recession. <laughs> we can buy some more people. <laughs> you know, when, I like to say, you know, when scrap is high, we buy scrap. When scrap is low, we buy competitors. So. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that. Pretty high tech, I know. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it works though. But you know, sometimes keeping it simple is the best way to handle it. And. Uh, you know, the fact that alters position for whatever's coming down, be it a recession, be it continued growth. You know, I think everybody in this room, it's got to feel pretty good to hear the news from the brothers themselves that, hey, alters in the best position possible. So, you know, some, you got a lot of great people in here. People yes, are, do. but it's also probably the biggest commodity missing in the marketplace. Everybody wants people. So what are you guys going to do to develop, what, what's the strategy at Alter to help develop more people? You know, at some point, some of the people in this room are going to retire and, you know, you got to replace them and, and you're going to grow. So what's the plan? I, I think those people that are going to retire are pretty hard to replace. We can put somebody else in that position, but I don't think I would use the word replace. Um, yeah, we've, we've been doing that. We've been uh, working hard on succession plans at all, all levels of the company. Uh, and putting it together, putting together mentors, um, it's what we have to do. And uh, I hope, we all hope, I think that the, the culture, the honesty, integrity, respect, um, 
is what will keep people here. Because um, a lot of companies don't do that. We've, we've had a number of people who've left and came back like a year later like, so would you take me back please? And, yeah. You know, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, depends on what the deal is, but um, it's all we can do is just keep bringing people in, giving them a chance, uh, giving them support, you know, to be the best them that they can be. Excellent. All right, a little fun here. Uh, Going to bring this in for a landing here. But yesterday we were talking, uh, you guys have this propensity to paint things. You got Big Bernie, the big peace sign. Jeff, want to jump in on this one, or Rich, or whoever? I don't remember painting anything. <laughs> <laughs> or is this you, Rob? Truck, truck boxes, truck boxes, sorry. Yeah, roll off boxes, then we painted. Uh, the old American pulverizer turning crusher that used to be in Davenport. Oh yeah. And we painted a big yellow peace sign on the side of it. That's right, I forgot that. And the thing is, the machine had been shut down for a long time, and it stayed shut down for a long time until we cut it up. But uh, yeah, but for uh, four or five years, there was a big, big yellow peace sign when you walk in. You're right. You're right. It was late '60s, early '70s. You know, <laughs> peace out. <laughs> and Big Bernie still exists today. Yeah. I mean, Where's Big Bernie at? What well, yard? Big, Council well, Bluffs. Council Bluffs. You bet. I think the sign is still there. I think we were upgrading the, sh the shredder, uh, the shear, but uh, the sign is still there. That was a surprise for Dad. Jake Barnes, who's an amazing man, and ran that yard. Um, he he uh, uh, he put the sign up because he knew my father would be embarrassed and not want it, <laughs> and, uh, and that's true. <laughs> All right, well, let's bring this into landing. Gentlemen, incredible. I've enjoyed this. I'm, I'm hoping everyone out there enjoyed it as well. Final thoughts. We're going to start with the oldest brother, Jeff. Final thoughts that you would like to communicate to your people and to somebody who, who needs to know something. Well, I think this is great that we're able to get everybody back together again. I haven't been to one in well, four or five years since I was at one as well. So, um, and, you know, get to see the... Uh, the folks I've known and meet some folks that I didn't know. I commented to a couple of people here that the definition for me of an old timer here is somebody that I know. <laughs> Fantastic. Rob? Well, I'm just, I'm honored. I mean, the people in this room are, are just amazing. They work together, they respect each other, um, and uh, no one's afraid to say what's on their mind, uh, and they shouldn't be, you know. Uh, so I'm, and as I said last night, and look at the, the age group. Yeah, we got a, we got a fairly young age. I mean, I'll probably ask HR to figure that out. Michelle, you can tell us what the average age is. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's important. This industry has been hurting for people for a long time. And I look at this group, I'm like, this is, this is fantastic. I mean, we're, we're, we're setting up for like the next 10, 20 years. And, uh, you know, it's, the future is incredibly bright, uh, not only because we, Primarily because of these, the people in this room, and a little help from a de decarbonization effort. So we're uh, we're in the right place at the right time, and you guys are the right people. Rich, yes, and I, I echoed those sentiments, and uh, uh, I did neglect to say that even though we did have uh, problems with an ethanol plant, at least I saw merit in Doug Reisdorfer back there and I thought he could be a great yard manager and <laughs> before he knew it. Uh, and then of course I had other mentors throughout the company like Don Martin and 
and, and, and many others uh, that have been wonderful throughout the time. And, and that's what makes this organization which is going to last. And I look forward to being here for the 150th anniversary. <laughs> Amen. Uh, well, there's your time limit. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a Sierra International Machinery original audio series. Thanks for listening. Please share this podcast and make sure to subscribe.